A Prayer Before Study Ineffable Creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Amen. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, scholar, mother, and person who gets social anxiety about ordering pizza on the phone. Well, can you believe it? Here we are all together at the very end of Julian's showings. Wow. Thank you so much for traveling through this amazing book with me. I hope that it has encouraged you and allowed you to grow. I want to start with a short recap of this sequence of chapters. Julian recounts one last showing, her image of Jesus dwelling in our souls as king in a great city. Our souls will never be at rest until Christ endlessly dwells in them. Then she returns, as it were, to waking life. But this ending of the revelations is not peaceful at all for her. The mental and physical agony of her sickness returns. She is terrified by sights and smells of the devil. And most troubling to her in the long run, she denies the truth of her showings. She tells a priest that she thinks she raved throughout the night. He, on the other hand, believes that her showings were real and sent by God. From this mistrust, Julian moves into a meditation on what she understands as the greatest dangers to receiving God's love for those who believe in him, impatience and despair. She then discusses the relationship between fear and the different types of fear and love. Contrary to how we often think, she sees what she calls reverent fear and love as connected. Julian further explains why it is important to us to know not only God's love, but also our own sin, to recognize that sin. She sees our suffering in this life as penance. And she writes that this entire book is meant for us to learn how to know ourselves and how to know God. I'm going to focus in this podcast on three aspects of this ending, because this ending is really incredibly rich, and I cannot even begin to cover it all. The 
first thing I'm going to briefly focus on is the temptation of the devil and Julian's lack of belief in her own visions. The second is this idea of living as suffering as penance. And the third is the very, very end of the book. Some of the most stunning and mysterious English, in my opinion, ever written. Julian undergoes two temptations and one failure after the majority of her showings. The first temptation is her self-doubt. She starts to think that she has been raving out of her mind rather than having true spiritual encounters. This confession of doubt is remarkable, in my opinion. It acknowledges the reality of coming back down to earth. Life does not primarily consist of challenging and ecstatic visionary moments. Discernment of truth is incredibly difficult. Julian practices humility as she confesses her doubts and shares them with us. And of course, her encounter with the devil. Compared to some medieval religious writing and visionary materials, it's pretty amazing that we made it this far without running into old Scratch himself. The idea that the devil or demons tempted you on your deathbed was widely accepted in the Middle Ages. It's no surprise that Julian experiences this unwelcome presence while she is also struggling in the aftermath of her showings. Julian undergoes spiritual struggles, both inward and outward, while she begins the twofold challenging work of healing from her illness and interpreting what has been given to her. So on to idea number two, that penance is unnecessary because our whole life is penitential. Julian mentions this suffering as penance, as living idea in several places, but a good place for us to turn to is chapter 81. For he regards us so tenderly that he sees all our life here to be penance. For the substantial and natural longing in us for him is a lasting penance in us. And he makes this penance in us. And mercifully, he helps us to bear it. For his love makes him long. His wisdom and his truth and his justice make him to suffer us here. And he wants to see us in this way. For this is our loving penance, and the greatest, as I see it. For this penance never leaves us until the time when we are fulfilled, when we shall have him for our reward. Chapter 81. So we've talked about penance before in the medieval penitential system, and you can listen to past episodes if you want a little reminder of that. Julian's words that our living itself, our longing for Christ, is penance, constitute a strong statement. She's effectively arguing to the people of her time that no one needs sit in the stocks, buy indulgences, or take a pilgrimage to Rome or Canterbury to punish or purge themselves of their sins. She takes a pretty radical stance in her contemporary church. Of course, Punishment is too simple of a definition for penance, though we often align them. When Julian talks about our life as penance, she does not mean that our life is a punishment for our sins, as we often think of penance. The great Italian poet, Dante Alighieri, 
can give us a much more helpful perspective on penance. Dante wrote the Divine Comedy and lived about 80 years before Julian was writing these words. Dante's famous poem is a journey through hell, purgatory, and then heaven. Purgatory stemmed from the medieval doctrine that we need purgation, we need penance, from our sinful earthly life before we are fit to meet our maker face to face. While the damned went to hell, the saved went to purgatory on their way to heaven. If you hadn't done enough penance on earth for your sins, true for almost everyone except the very greatest saints, medieval people thought, then you would go to purgatory. So most people expected to be in purgatory. The goal was just to be there as short a time as possible. So the ideas of penance and purgatory are linked in the medieval imagination. Some theologians and writers portrayed purgatory as a place of torment, a sort of minor league hell staffed by angels, only slightly less cruel than demons. But Dante portrays it differently. Purgatory is not punitive. Purgatory consists of discipline and trial, making someone fit for the kingdom of God. Dante's purgatory is a refiner's fire, cleansing impurities in an act of love and education. People in Dante's purgatory are assigned to tasks based on particular sins at different points. Um, And so depending on what they struggled with most in their lives, that would be a section that they were in much longer. Different parts of purgatory are devoted to healing different sins. So for example, when Dante enters the part of purgatory where the prideful struggle to learn humility, he encounters giant portrayals of humble people. Mary and other saints line the sides of a narrow path, big images of them, and they're also imprinted on the path itself on the ground. The prideful walk this path, saddled with onerous burdens along this difficult way. They are so heavily burdened that they cannot look up, though they can see the saints who practiced humility. They are learning, literally, how to not think so highly of themselves, to understand themselves as created, needy, and limited, to acknowledge these limitations. When they reach the end of this journey, they find themselves lighter, able to look up towards the heavens, not bowed towards the ground. It was their pride that kept their necks and backs curving inevitably towards that ground. But their struggles and their viewing of the humble on the path itself reminded them of who they were and in whose footsteps they followed. Dante believes in the reality of purgatory, but his depiction of purgatory is also a metaphor for how growing out of our sin works. Freed by the grace of God from our sins, it is still not easy for us to act with love. For most people, we still struggle with particular temptations, even when we know we are freed by Jesus from them through his love. We practice goodness, reclaiming it, cultivating new ways of being in the world. As Thomas Aquinas wrote, virtues are, by their very definition, 
difficult. To be patient during anger goes against the grain. To be gracious while judged is very hard. Or think of it this way. One of Julian's favorite words for God is courteous, which was a central concept for the people of the Middle Ages. We now associate courteousness with things like table manners, you know, don't keep your elbows on the table, use the correct utensil, that kind of thing. That's true for medieval folks too, but it was so much more than that for them. Courtesy demanded appropriate behavior, appropriate attire. It was all about respect for one another. You wouldn't send someone in rags in front of their king. They would put on their best clothing possible, even if it was their best rags, to show their respect for the king. Julian's Jesus is homely, which means he loves us and accepts us in our rags, but he is also courteous, which Julian does not want us to forget. Our struggles here on earth equip us to learn sacrificial love, to love like Jesus. Our longing prepares us to face our courteous king. Like Dante's purgatory, Julian's idea of penance in living as longing is a gift of learning to love, though a very difficult gift and one that we have trouble understanding. To me, this is one of Julian's most hopeful and most important ideas. It means that none of our lives are wasted. Last week, I quoted one of my favorite Julian lines. For his love, he suffers us never to lose time. Julian believes that every dreary day spent in quarantine, every struggle with temptation, every loss, every bit of suffering will not be wasted because of the love of God. Thus, her repeated usage of the word profitable. In this love, he has made all things profitable to us. And in this love, our life is everlasting. Chapter 86. More than anything, Julian wants us to know that in the midst of all this suffering here on earth, the Lord's love is unceasing and all-powerful. Nothing is beyond God's work of redemption from the stupid to the mundane to the terrible. In many cases in our lives, it is hard, it is almost impossible to hope for this redemption. Perhaps you are in the nights between the crucifixion and Easter, the terrible dark night of the soul, Holy Saturday, where the whole world seems dead and or meaningless. Hope is a big ask. I've had moments where my life looks like it is yawning at me out of an abyss of repetition and weariness. But the ending of this book charges us with a practice of hope. Julian's vision remains fundamentally incomplete, God's big task not yet finished. If you wish, read this ending out loud to yourself very slowly. It's at the very end. I'll read it to you. This book is begun by God's gift and His grace, but it is not yet performed as I see it. 
and from the time that it was revealed, I desired many times to know in what was our Lord's meaning. And 15 years after and more, I was answered in spiritual understanding. And it was said, What, do you wish to know your Lord's meaning in this thing? Know it well. Love was his meaning. Who reveals it to you? Love. What did he reveal to you? Love. Why does he reveal it to you? For love. Remain in this and you will know more of the same, but you will never know different without end. So I was taught that love is our Lord's meaning. Everything Julian has witnessed in wonder distills into the simplicity that God's love is the meaning. This simplicity certainly does not equate easiness. Neither should it create a hallmark card mantra that masks the bleeding, painful wounds of living. As Julian knows very well, love does not eliminate pain, as loving itself in our world so often entails suffering. You can listen to week three of this series for a refresher on that. It's not like everything is just okay and easy now, or like God is saying to us, get over it, it'll all be fine in the end anyway. It does mean that we are not like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, who finally peeks behind the curtain of the great wizard, only to find a small, insignificant man at the controls of a machine. It is the opposite, a promise of hope, that in all the twists and turns of our lives, there is love in all unexpected places. No matter how many corners you round, how often you must backtrack, or when you reach places that seem like dead ends, love is there too. The more we grow in this promise, the more we learn to see and discern it. It reminds me of a part in one of my favorite prayers, St. Patrick's Breastplate, a prayer that is also a promise and a shield of hope. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I hope you've enjoyed this time with Julian. Perhaps you've been following along in her text Or perhaps this series has emboldened you to give her a shot yourself to try to read it. I know you can do it. I have full confidence. Thank you for exploring her words with me. This entire series is also available online at oldbookswithgrace.com. If you feel like it, share with a friend or leave a comment or review. Next week... A new series is beginning. 
which I'm very excited about. It's called The Many Faces of Jesus, and it's about uh, medieval representations of Jesus, different versions of him that were popular during the Middle Ages and what we can learn from them. Some of them are weird. Some of them are rather uncomfortable. Some are inspiring. Uh, Some are a mix of all of those things. So I hope you'll join me for that. And thanks again.